I uh, would like to begin this morning a a new series, a 12-week series on the life and times of Jeremiah the prophet. And uh, I'd like to begin by inviting you to turn to the first chapter of his prophecy, the uh, book that we call the Prophecy of Jeremiah. Uh, It would be interesting to me to know how many of you have read the book of Jeremiah within the last uh, year. Would you raise your hand? Uh, That's what I thought. Uh, How many of you have never read the book of Jeremiah? How many of you can't even find it? (laughs) You might try finding Isaiah. That's a big book that has 66 chapters. And then uh, keep going to the right. Jeremiah would be the next book. Jeremiah is probably not one of uh, your favorite prophets. He certainly wasn't to his contemporaries, and he isn't today. Isaiah is by far the best-loved prophet, I'm sure. Daniel and Ezekiel, the most colorful. Jeremiah is ordinarily overlooked. But he is my favorite prophet because he's so human. He's so very much like us. I think we're inclined to think of these prophets as very cold, austere, awesome, uh, distant people. Uh, whose faces would make a good frontispiece for the Book of Lamentations or uh, uh, Les Miserables. Uh, but that's not true. That's not true at all. These, these, were, these prophets were men and women just like us, very much like us. Jeremiah was very, very young when he was called into, into his ministry. He describes himself in the chapter we're going to read in, in a few moments as a youngster. He says, ah, oh, oh Lord, he says, I, I don't know anything. I'm just a kid. And uh, the, the word that he uses for it, it's translated child in the New International. Uh, the word that he uses is a word that was used in Hebrew for, um, for someone in their late adolescence or early post-adolescence, someone of marriageable age, someone very young. And that's a real encouragement to me. When God wants to do something great, he doesn't inaugurate a program. He calls a a person, a man or a woman, and very often he calls the most unlikely person someone very, very young or very, very old. Uh, Let me ask, how many of you here are between the ages of 16 and 21? Jeremiah was somewhere in that age span. Raise your hand. Stand up. I'm not going to ask you to make a speech. Just stand up. See what you look like. See this young man right down here? That Jeremiah looks somewhat like that. <laughs> and Jeremiah would say to us, as Paul said to Timothy, don't ever let anyone belittle or despise your youth. But be an example of the believer in word, in walk, in, in purity, in spirit, in faith, and in love. The problem is never youth. The problem may be immaturity, but the problem is never youth. God can take someone who's very young, very ill-equipped for life, and do something very, very great. And that's uh, what we're going to discover, I believe, about uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called to minister in very ominous times. Alexander Moorhead said of him that he was called to... Uh, minister to people whom he loved who were sliding over the precipice into ruin. His nation was dying. 
It was disintegrating around him. And for that reason, this is a very relevant book because I think our uh, our cultures are uh, are analogous. I, it's very uh, very possible that uh, our society is disintegrating around us today, and we've been called to minister uh, in in very similar times. He tells us in this book some of the marks of declension and. Uh, and the way to respond, the things to say and, and do at a time when, when the city is dying, when a culture is dying. And so what Jeremiah has to say to us as, he's, as he spoke to his contemporaries is very, very relevant. has meaning and significance for us. Now the book begins in chapter 1 with a, a bare-bones historical sketch of the background of this period. I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 1, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth, Anathoth was a little city about three or four miles to the north of Jerusalem in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah. Josiah was the king. He was about 21 when, uh, when Jeremiah was called uh, to his ministry. And these two young men uh, linked up in order to uh, to speak to the nation during this very critical time. They were both very young. Jeremiah in his late teens or early 20s and Josiah in his 20s. He was called in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and uh, he ministered on through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Now, these are just words, just names for most of us, but uh, it gives us the span of his ministry and dates from 626 B.C. to 587 B.C., a period of about 40 years. So he started very young. He ministered uh, during a time when the nation fell into spiritual decline and ultimately into ruin and went into exile. And then uh, Jeremiah himself was taken off into exile with uh, certain displaced Jews that went down into Egypt, and he was probably killed by his countrymen down there, stoned. Now let me, let me give you a, a historical sketch, a little bit of background of this period. Uh, early in the 7th century, King Hezekiah died. Now, King Hezekiah was one of the last of the good kings of the southern kingdom. When he, when he died, it was a very, very dark day for Judah. His son, Manasseh, came to the throne, and Manasseh was the, was the most wicked, absolutely the worst king that reigned over Judah. He did what Ahab did for the northern kingdom. He brought in all of the, uh, the, the idols of the nations that surrounded them, brought in the, the Baalim and and they worshipped Moloch and the Asherim. And uh, he brought in pagan uh, priests. And he uh, it's really the responsibility for the disintegration of the nation rested on, on his shoulders. Now, late in his reign, he was taken off into captivity, into exile, by Ezra Haddon, the Assyrian king. And uh, he was thrown in jail, and he had to plow, or had to grind corn for a while. He came to his senses. He came back to the Lord, and he was given a few more years of, uh, of, of power in Judah. And he tried to set a few things right, but he died, and his son Ammon came to the, to the throne. And he went back to some of the prior policies of his father and continued to bring in idolatrous practices. 
until he was assassinated after about two years. The people got enough of him, and they put him to death. And his son, Josiah, came to the throne. Josiah was only eight years old when he came to the throne. And when he was 16, the history tells us, he gave his heart to the Lord, and he instituted uh, sweeping changes religiously and, and spiritually in Judah. And he couldn't do much. Because there was so much inertia, so much so much spiritual inertia in the nation. It's like trying to move a mule. You ever you ever try to move a mule when they don't want to move? You can get them to shift their weight, but you can't move them very far. Move their center of gravity over a little bit, but that's that's about it. And that was the problem that Josiah faced. He he was able to make a few changes, but but it was his any revival that came about was. Very shallow, very short-lived, very superficial. Now, it's during this time, during this time of Josiah's um, revival, that Jeremiah uh, was uh, called to his position as a prophet, and these two young men linked themselves together, as I said, and they, they began to work to set things right within the nation. Now, about five years after Jeremiah was called, in 621 B.C., they were rummaging around in a storeroom in the temple, and they found a copy of the law. Hilkiah, who was the priest and who may have been the father of the Hilkiah that's mentioned here is the father of, of Jeremiah, was uh, looking through some old manuscripts in the Geniza, the storeroom of the temple, and he, and he found a scroll, and, 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 and it was the scriptures. And he brought it out and showed it to Josiah. Josiah said, he was thunderstruck. We've got to do something about this. We've been living for years in rebellion to God. And he sponsored a Passover, the likes of which they had never seen in Judah, and uh, tried to make some, some again, some, some changes, some profound changes in the spiritual life of the nation. Jeremiah says in his, uh, in his prophecy in chapter 17, concerning the, the finding of the scroll, your words were found, he says this to the Lord, your words were found and I did eat them and they were to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Made a real change in Jeremiah's life as well. But uh, these two young men were not able to make any lasting changes. After Josiah died, things went from bad to worse and there was a succession of very wicked kings, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and, and eventually Zedekiah and the nation went into exile. Now it's during this period of time that Jeremiah carried out his ministry. Now, the word of the Lord, he says, came to him. And what follows is a description of his call. Verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. What the Lord said to Jeremiah is that he was prepared in a very unique and special way for the task that uh, God had in mind for him. He says, before you were even conceived, I, I knew you. The word that he uses for know here is a word that's used throughout the Old Testament for the most personal and intimate of love relationships. God says, Jeremiah, before you were even a twinkle in your father's eye, I... Uh, I knew you, and, and I loved you, and you were special to me. Now, he isn't implying that Jeremiah had pre-existence. He's saying that he, God, had pre-existence, and he knew him. 
And that would serve Jeremiah well in the years to come because there were times in his life when he didn't think anybody loved him. And they probably didn't. He was probably the most despised, hounded, harassed person uh, that you can find in, in, in history. Totally disliked. But uh, that's what held him fast. Even if the whole world hated him, God loved him. The second thing, he says, is that God had formed him in the womb. All the genetic uh, stuff, the, 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 the genetic codes, everything that made Jeremiah what he was. You know, I don't know whether he was tall, dark, and handsome, or short, shot, and shapeless. You know, I don't know what he was like. He could have been a little guy or a great big guy. He could have been extremely bright or a little bit slow or... You know, very humorous or kind of dull. I don't know, but but whatever, whatever went into making up Jeremiah, God put it there. It was all according to a master design. God had the blueprint, and He formed him in the womb precisely as He wanted him to be to fulfill the task that He had in mind for him. And then He says, "Before you were born, after conception, and before birth, I set you apart. I sanctified you. I gave you a, a special task, which He spells out in the last line of this triplet. I have called you to be a prophet to the nations, to the goyim, to not just to Judah, but to the Gentile nations." And as you read through the book, you discover that He uh, preached not only to Judah, but also to Egypt and Babylon, and to Edom and Moab. And Syria, Damascus, Phoenicia, the nations today that we identify as Egypt and Jordan and Syria and Lebanon and Israel and Iraq and Iran, all those Near Eastern countries that were in foment even even back then. And and Jeremiah has this has this enormous responsibility laid on his shoulders to be a prophet to the civilized world of that time, not just to Judah just to his near contemporaries, but, but to the whole world, basically. Now, we're inclined to think that it's only the prophets who have that sort of status, that they're given unique calls, but Scripture tells us that, that what's true of Jeremiah is essentially true of us. Before God, before you were conceived, God knew you. Ephesians 1 tells us that. Romans 8, God already sustained a loving relationship to you. And, and that's what gives us our sense of self-worth. I sometimes, uh, you know, if I fly over Southern California or Seattle and I look down and see all those houses and all those people, and I think, good grief, how does God even know I exist, much less love me? I, I, I know it because God said it. That he loves me. I'm special. I'm unique. He knows me. He cares about me. And, and that's what sustains you when, when you're not successful and when people don't like you. We had dinner last night with uh, two other couples, and one of the women was commenting that she just recently moved here from Boise, and she left another city where she had a ministry, and she, had, she was known in the neighborhood for her accomplishments, and her husband was very well known, and she had a lot of status, and she felt very secure there, and she came to Boise, and nobody knew her. And she didn't have any... Uh, anything to, to affirm her until she remembered that God loved her. The, uh, the disciples once came back from a, an evangelistic errand that Jesus sent them on. They were all excited about the, the effects of their ministry. 
And Jesus said to them, Don't rejoice that the demons were subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, that's what gives us a good feeling about ourselves. It's not what we do. It's who we are. We're special in God's sight. And secondly, I want you and, and, and me to know that God formed you just the way you are for the particular purpose that he had in mind. I don't know why God made you and made me exactly like we are, the particular physiology that we have, the kind of minds that we have, the limitations, the weaknesses that we have. But, but whatever the, it is that God put into you genetically, it's, it's there because it's, it's according to the master plan. Maybe you have a tendency to, to put on weight and you think, oh, my goodness, you know, if I didn't have that problem, then you know, I could have a much more effective ministry. But that's no problem to God. Or you're a man and you live here in Idaho with the archetypical man, you know, has big muscles and he's tough. And, and you just happen to be sort of frail and sickly. And you think, well, how can I have any kind of, kind of ministry in this town? But the way you are is the way God designed you. David said in Psalm 139, he could look at himself and say, you're wonderful. Have you ever done that? You just looked at your body in the mirror, you know, all the lumps and... And oddly shaped angles and weird things going on. And you you say, that's wonderful. Because God formed you for a special reason. There's a man once who was born blind. And Jesus and the disciples walked by. And they saw him sitting by the side of the road. And the disciples said, who sinned, this man or, or, or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus said, neither. So God can be glorified. Have you ever thought of that? We, we think that our, our limitations are limitations, but they aren't. They're strengths. They're assets. They're not liabilities. Paul was concerned about what he called his thorn in the flesh because he felt that that rendered him weak and in, inept and inadequate, and he besought the Lord to take it away, and the Lord, Lord said, no, we're going to leave those weaknesses there because when you're weak, you're strong. Because when we're weak, we're dependent. When we're strong, we, we have merely human resources to count on. When we're weak, we have divine resources. We have the, uniforce, we have the resources of the God who created the universe at our disposal. So don't, don't ever deny yourself the privilege of serving because you feel inadequate or you feel that you're weak, or you don't look right, or your voice isn't right, or you're not particularly bright, or you can't remember things, or you're not particularly attractive. Nor should we necessarily think that because we have certain assets, those are necessarily necessarily strengths. God called Moses when he was down and out. He was 80, beyond the time when he felt he could uh, serve. God said, I, w- I want you to deliver my people from Egypt. Something for which there's no analogy in history. That had never happened before. It hasn't happened since. And, and Moses said, but, 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 but what can I d- d- do? He had a speech impediment. He stuttered, probably. And God said to him, Moses, who made your mouth? You see, that's no problem. That was no problem to God. It's no problem to God that, that, that we're weak and limited. 
our liabilities become our strongest assets, our strength, when we're dependent upon God. Now, the, the, the thing that, that God says about Jeremiah in terms of his ministry is also true. God has called you to a ministry. Perhaps it's not to be a prophet to the whole world, but, but he has sanctified you. He has set you apart, and you could fill in uh, under that, uh, where that third line is. Whatever it is that you're doing right now, your shop, your office, your dorm, your classroom, your campus, your neighborhood, your community, your club, your whatever, that, that's the place to which God has called you and set apart and set you apart and prepared you from eternity. Now, uh, Jeremiah responds the way we normally respond. He says in verse 6, Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I don't know a thing, literally. Most of the translations say I don't know a word, but actually what he says, I, I don't know anything. I'm just a kid. What can I do? God says, don't say I'm only a, a child. That's always what the Lord says. Don't say things like that. Don't say you can't do anything. Don't say your voice isn't right or your personality isn't right. Or Don't say those things. You, you must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you. Then the Lord reached out his hand and Touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down and destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. The problem in Israel was that they were making policy when they should have been repenting of their sins, and they were trying to form alliances with Egypt and other countries to, I said Israel, I meant Judah. They were trying to form alliances with other countries to protect themselves against uh, the threat from the east. And uh, they had it all wrong. The country was full of wrong-headed ideas and, and crazy notions about how to protect themselves. And uh, it was Jeremiah's task to, to tear down all of, those, all of that wrong thinking and to build on the right basis. And he says, you're going to be a, you're going to be a messenger to, to all of these nations to tear down nations and, and to build them up. That's quite a, that's quite a call. God says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because I'm with you. That's always God's word to us when he calls us to do some impossible thing. It doesn't depend upon you. Every demand upon you, he says, is basically a demand upon me. I'm with you. I'm here. I'm available. All you have to do is make yourself available. Go where I want you to go. You don't need to worry about where I send you. I'll get you to the right place at the right time to talk to the right person if you make yourself available. When you roll out of bed in the morning, your feet hit the floor, the first thing you ought to say, and I ought to say is, Lord, I'll, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'll be whatever you want me to be. I'm available to you. So put me to work. Maybe it's, uh, you know, I've got to start in the kitchen. Or I have to go down and work in an office that I don't particularly enjoy. But that's the call to which uh, you know, I must go, and, and, and I'm available. And then secondly, he says to Jeremiah, whatever I've said to you, you say to them. It's just that simple. I'll tell you what to say, and you say it. God's told us what we're to say. It's right here in this book. He doesn't speak to us directly today as the prophets uh, were addressed. 
but he speaks through his word. So we need to get to know this word. We need to be students of it. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to memorize it. We need to ponder it. We need to learn it. We need to be involved in Bible studies where we can can enhance our understanding of, of Scripture and then tell people what we've learned. That's all. Just go wherever God wants you to go and say whatever he said. Whatever you learn, you impart to others. That's simple. And God will use you to overthrow strongholds of evil, uh, ideas that are destructive, notions that are creating havoc. He'll do that for you. Isaiah said, uh, the Lord God has given me the tongue of a scholar that I might know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. Don't you want that, that assignment to be able to speak the right thing to weary people and encourage them, and build them up, get them going, set them right? Isaiah says, I'm, I'm that sort of person. The next line says, the Lord God wakens me morning by morning. He opens my ear to hear as a learner. So Isaiah got up every morning and God taught him something and then Isaiah went out and he told that to somebody else and that was used of God to, to correct people's thinking and encourage their hearts and equip them for life. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy that scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching and instruction and encouragement and counsel so that the man or woman of God can be uh, equipped for every good work. Here's the equipment that we need to say the right word at the right time to the right person. So just uh, make yourself available. Don't worry about your limitations. Just say, Lord, here I am. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll be whatever you want me to be. I'll say whatever you want me to say, and God will put you to his intended purpose. That's his provision. He not only has prepared you for the role in life that he's called you to, but he's given you every infinite provision that you need. Now, the third thing that uh, God does for Jeremiah is make some promises, beginning with verse 11. The Lord came to me, the word of the Lord came to me, this time in a vision rather than in words. What do you see, Jeremiah? Jeremiah said, I see the branch of an almond tree. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. He plays on the word for almond here. The uh, Hebrew word for almond sounds very much like the Hebrew word for watch. It's as though he said, uh, see the watcher bush? Uh, I'm watching over my word. The almond was the, one of the first trees to bud in the spring, like cottonwoods here or uh, forsythia. And it's a harbinger of spring. We have a big forsythia bush out in our backyard, and when I see that thing starting to bud, I know that spring's right around the corner. It's certain. Spring's coming up. won't be long. That's what God says about his word. It's a sure thing. You can count on it. You're not going to be embarrassed if you proclaim it. It's going to happen. And then uh, he has another vision, which, which corroborates the first, underscores it. The word of the Lord came to me again. I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north. I answered, the Lord said, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all our surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness and forsaking me and burning incense to other gods and worshiping what their, what their hands have made. This was one of the, the very sad things about Jeremiah's life, is that he was called to have a, a negative message, to talk about judgment. That's why they didn't like him in his day, and that's why even today people don't like to read Jeremiah. It sounds so negative. Talked about judgment. 
essentially he said that God is faithful to all of his promises, his threats of judgment as well as his promises of, of blessings. It's a sure thing. Uh, in those days they boil water in pots, usually an open fire is kind of a pit in the middle of a house, smoke hole in the ceiling, and uh, they had to be very careful to keep children away from it unless they tip it over. And what, uh, what Jeremiah saw was a pot of boiling water that was tipping away from the north so that its contents were about to spill out toward the south and flood and devastate Judah. And he's talking about, the, as, he just, as he explains, the coming invasion of the army from the east. And in those days, they traveled through the Fertile Crescent and down from modern-day Syria straight down south into uh, Judah. And it, 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 this pot was a symbol of this flood that was, that was going to spill out on Judah and destroy it. And really all he's trying to say to Jeremiah is that my promises are good. Like Bob Dylan says, God don't make promises that he don't keep, even if they're threats. Jeremiah had his problems with this. He, uh, like, like most of us, was a little bit timid and unsure of himself. And there were times when he, when he was inclined to back off when he was opposed. One time God said, Jeremiah, uh, go get yourself a wooden yoke, the kind of yoke they put on an ox, and put it on your neck, big old rough wooden oak yoke, and rope your arms to it, and, and go through the streets of Jerusalem and, and, and tell my people, this is, that's what's going to happen to them. They're going to be taken off into captivity, yoked like oxen if, if they don't uh, straighten up. And furthermore, go tell the kingdoms of Edom and Moab and, and the others the same thing. So Jeremiah puts his big wooden yoke on his back, and he goes walking through the streets of Jerusalem. You know, excuse me, excuse me, pardon me. And he comes to the comes up to the palace, and uh, uh, Hananiah, who was the, the prophet, comes out, and he says, Jeremiah, what are you doing? And Jeremiah says, well, the Lord told me. It's just a question of time before we go into captivity. Hananiah says, well, you're, what do you know? The Lord told me that in two years the king of Nebuchadnezzar, or the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to bring all of the utensils back into the, into the temple. Jeremiah said, he did? And I said, yeah, that's, that's what he said. Jeremiah said, well, that isn't what he told me. So Hananiah takes the yoke off and he chops it into pieces with an axe. And Jeremiah says, well, I have to go back and think about this a little bit. And he went back home and he said, Lord, is that what's going to happen? And God said, you go get an iron yoke and put it on your shoulders. And you go back and tell Hananiah that it's just a question of time before this is going to happen to the nation. And as a matter of fact, Hananiah, you're going to die by this time next year. Jeremiah gets the iron yoke, and he goes back, makes his way through the streets, back to the palace. And he says, Hananiah, God told me that judgment is coming. And furthermore, you're going to die. And sure enough, he did. A few months later, had a heart attack, keeled over. Jeremiah had to learn that somewhat the hard way, that when God says something, he means it. And he had his problems with it. He was inclined to shrink occasionally from the idea. He wasn't always sure. But in the very beginning of his ministry, God gave him these two signs, the sign of the almond tree and the sign of the boiling pot, in order to, to let him know that God's word was certain. Now, uh, there's a final word which God uh, supplies, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Here it's a promise of protection. God had prenatally, 
prepared Jeremiah for this task. He'd given him all the provision that he needed. He gave him himself and his word. He promised that his word would, would, be, would come true, and now he promises to protect it. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. I don't have time to uh, comment on that, on that uh, statement. It's a, it's a principle that's reiterated throughout Scripture. If, if we let fear have its way, if, if we permit fear to keep us from acting in obedience to God, eventually we'll be tyrannized by our fears. Jesus' word to the, uh, to the apostles was, don't keep on fearing. You can't help the initial reactions of fear, the, the emotions of fear that overwhelm you when you have some hard thing to do. But don't ever let that fear tyrannize you, dominate you, and keep you from doing what God's called you to do. Some of you may be involved in, in a relationship that you know is not good for you right now. You know that it's contrary to God's will and it's destructive of your spiritual life. And you know you've got to cut it off, but you're afraid to because there isn't anybody else out there. You're long days and lonely nights if you cut that thing off. And uh, you're afraid. Well, you can't help the fear, but you need to hear what, what God says to Jeremiah and to us, that if we let our fear have its way, it'll, it'll tyrannize us. We'll give way to it. God says, don't be afraid. Do what I've called you to do. Don't keep on fearing. Act in obedience, even though you're afraid. If you don't, your, your fears will, will dominate you. But uh, he says, today, regardless of how you feel inside, I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall, to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, all of them, uh, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, all these wicked men who ruled Judah during her last days, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. How would you like to, uh, how would you uh, feel if you knew that tomorrow you have to address the Reagan household and the um, Supreme Court and the Congress of the United States and all of the Eastern establishment uh, intellectuals, the people of the land here are not the common people, but the landed gentry, the wealthy, powerful class in, in Judah. If you knew that this time tomorrow you had to stand before them and pronounce judgment on our, on our nation, that would be terrifying. And Jeremiah was afraid, but God says, it's all right, it's all right. I've made you like a fortified city. They won't win. You will. I'll deliver you. You know what happened to Jeremiah throughout his lifetime? Uh, as long as Josiah was on the throne, Jeremiah was protected. But when Josiah died, he was killed in a very tragic war with, with the Egyptians. We'll talk more about that later. Untimely death, and it made things very difficult for Jeremiah. The kings that succeeded uh, Josiah hated Jeremiah. His writings were suppressed. Jehoiachin, uh, Jehoiachin uh, uh, Jeremiah wrote them down. His scribe wrote them down. And as they were written and handed to the king, he took a penknife and, and slit them into columns and burned them. That was, his, that was his impression of Jeremiah's writings and his authority. 
The man himself was maligned and mistreated and hated. It's interesting, the archaeologists have found in the city of Lachish, which is one of the last cities to fall during the Babylonian invasion. They found some little uh, uh, parts of clay pots with writing on the messages from uh, an officer, a military officer, in the city of Jerusalem down to Lachish. And then these these ostraca, these little these writings on clay uh, clay pots, talk about the prophet. And most people think it's Jeremiah. And and even in these writings, he's maligned. And eventually, he was thrown into a a pit, a cistern, and left there to die. And he was rescued, but later taken off into Egypt and and killed by one of his countrymen, the people that he loved so much and whom he wanted to deliver. His whole life was that way. Things just went from bad to worse. And I read a passage like this, and God says, I'm going to deliver you. And all I see is a lot of heartache and pain for for Jeremiah. And I say, what in the world's going on here? It sounds very much like 2 Timothy. Jeremiah said this at the first part of his life. Paul, at the end of his life, said, uh, at my first defense, he was in the Mamerton dungeon. He was uh, shortly to be led down to the south of Rome to the Ostian Way and Nero cut his head off and he had just days or weeks to live and he, and he writes to Timothy and he says at my first defense no one stood by me no one represented me nevertheless he said the Lord stood by me and I was delivered from the lion's mouth Nero didn't feed him to the lions in the Colosseum and he goes on to say and I know that he will deliver me and, and bring me safely into his eternal kingdom. And, and I know, because history tells us so, that within a few weeks Nero cut off his head. And I say, now wait a minute, what, what does Paul mean when he says he's going to deliver me? Well, he doesn't mean that he's going to save us from physical danger or physical harm or heartache or personal disaster. What, what he promises is that he is there with us and he will give us the resources to go through anything and we won't give way to cowardice or fear. We won't give up. We won't quit. Paul was able to stand before Nero and make a bold proclamation of, of the gospel. He didn't recant. He didn't chicken out when he stood in front of the, of the entire Roman Empire. And neither did Jeremiah. And that's what God says to us. No matter what lies ahead, God will give us the grace to go through it, and he'll give us the message that will have lasting, eternal impact. J.R.R. Tolkien, in his, uh, one, of the, one of his books, uh, describes Frodo, the little, uh, little hobbit, uh, shrinking from the task that was given to him, and he says, Oh, why has, have I been called at a time like this? And Gandalf, the little wizard, says, Frodo, you've been called for a time like this. And that's really what, what Jeremiah says to us. That's what the Lord is saying to us. The place that you find yourself, your neighborhood, your office, your shop, your campus, that's your call. And God has prepared you for that task, and he's given you all of his mighty resources, and he's promised that his word will have effect, and he's promised to protect you from defection or failure of faith. He's prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And he'll give you the words to say what needs to be said, and he'll get you to the right place at the, at the right time to talk to the right person. That's his promise. And he's always faithful to his promises. Let's pray.
Father, these are to us far more than mere words on a page. This is truth that we want to be written on our hearts. And we ask as we, as we go from this place today that you would fill us with, with hope and with confidence. Take away our fear, our feelings of inadequacy, our frustration that we're not what we want to be or think we ought to be. And we thank you for your grace, Lord, that makes, makes everything possible. And for the fact that these demands that, that lay upon us are really demands upon you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.